You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. My wife is out of town this weekend, so I thought I'd begin by talking about her. She's in Texas with her family in her hometown, and uh, awesome. Ben is struggling this morning because I broke my mic um, when uh, earlier this morning, so I'm on the backup mic, and this is usually the mic we reserve for people who are guest speakers or have to speak for some other reason, it's usually not loudmouths like me. Uh, so he's probably having to turn everything down. Which brings me to my point. My wife and I don't fight a lot. We've been married for 31 years and we've had very few fights. But when we have um, verbal discord, you know what I'm saying? One of the times that that happened most frequently was surrounding trips or vacations. Because my wife, she had this weird idea about vacations that had to do with like rest and relaxation and recharging. And I tended to bring a little more um, intensity to a trip. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, let me give you an example. We would go on a road trip. This was pre-GPS. And we would have one of those big atlases. We still have one of those big atlases. And so, we'd be driving. I would be doing the driving. The children would be in back complaining about needing to stop. I'd be like, hey, we're only 10 hours into this thing. You guys be quiet. You know, we're, we're here to set a, a family of four road trip record. I don't know where they keep those records, but we wanted to be on the list. That's kind of how I would approach it. My wife, she would enjoy looking at the Atlas. So let's say we're driving across Kansas. She's looking at the Atlas, calculating the distance between Billings and Cheyenne. And all of a sudden we come up to Topeka and I'm like, do we take the loop around or do we go straight through? And she would go, oh, I don't know. Let me go to that page. And I would want to help her be able to focus. So I would ask the question louder and more intently to help her be able to find that page quicker. So you're like, you're a jerk. Yes. The answer to that question is yes, I am. I'd be like, do we take the loop around or do we go straight through? And she's like, I don't know, I'm trying to find it. She's looking up Topeka and is there a blow-up map of that? And then here's the, and I'm like, left or right, left or right. And she's like, I don't know. And then we would go left or right. But whatever it was, it was the opposite of what we should have done. And then I would think I need to teach her a lesson. And so I would decide to give her the silent treatment. There's a problem with that. She doesn't mind the silent treatment. (laughs) My wife could go from Goodland to Kansas City, all the way across the state of Texas, me not say a word. She'd be fine. 
The silent treatment was self-torture. I'm driving two minutes into it thinking, does she not know I've not said a word? I'm not, I'm not talking to her. And I'd look at her and she'd be like, dude, she'd be back looking at the Atlas. And I'm like, I'm giving her the silent treatment. And then I'd want to say I'm giving you the silent treatment, but you can't say you're giving someone the silent treatment. I tell you that story because we're going to look this morning in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. And we're going to look at three different instances between Jesus and his disciples. And in each one, Peter speaks up. And when you read through the Gospels, Peter gets a bad rap because he's always the one who talks. But I can relate to Peter. Some of you, you cannot relate to Peter at all because you would be the 13th disciple to talk if there were only 12. That's your personality, and God bless you for that. Listen, I've been saying something known in my mind. It was a dumb thing to say and just kept on saying it. Not once or twice in my life have I done that. I could make lists of it. And Peter is going to say the most profound and truthful things in Mark 8 and 9. And also some of the dumbest things recorded in Scripture that anybody said. But he did talk. And that I can relate to. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse number 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, this is a very, Mark records a very condensed version of this. We know that the, some of the other gospels uh, Peter's response is expanded a little bit. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one. And Jesus' response is expanded a little bit. Jesus would say, this is the rock, this, your, this truth. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here, Mark records just a very short interaction. Jesus asked two questions. The first question he asked is, who do other people say that I am? Which might at first seem like a, a question born out of ego, or but, but, it, but Jesus is trying to get to the point he gets to. And so he said, who do other people say? And they said, well, some people say John the Baptist, but that's kind of a weird answer, maybe because John the Baptist had been killed, but Jesus and John had interacted with one another, and there were some pretty big differences between them but they were both popular figures of that generation and, and popular teachers. And then he said, well, some people say Elijah, which was sort of like their go-to powerful prophet. You know, Elijah called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. He was 
translated up into heaven in a chariot of fire. He did many amazing things. And so when you were trying to think of a teacher, uh, you might just go, well, he's like Elijah. And then other people, you know, maybe they were, they were other more nuanced and they said, well, no, he's like this prophet or that prophet. But then Jesus said this, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? Because this is at the heart of the gospel. Romans chapter one, the, Paul would write, beginning in verse one, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Paul said, I am chosen by God to preach the good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then he tells us what that good news is, beginning in verse three. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as, as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. See, what you believe about Jesus is everything. It's everything. You might say, well, preacher, I'm going to church. Preacher, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to love my wife and, and be a good dad, and I'm trying to wh whatever. But who do you say Jesus is? You ever have those folks come, maybe on a Saturday morning? It, I don't know, it's Saturday morning when they hit my neighborhood, and they're all dressed up nice, and they've got their pamphlets there, and I'm kind of in sweatpants, and my hair's still a mess, and they ring the doorbell, and they want to talk to you about their God. That ever happened to you? And really what you want to do is just, like, not answer. But I'm a pastor, so I feel like I kind of have to answer. And then you always wonder, like, the things that they say sound right, but not exactly right. And you're scared that you're not going to have the right answer. Or that, you know, the next thing you know, you're going to get sucked into a cult. I don't know. You know, simple way to deal with that, that I found. Talk to me about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? Well, Jesus was a good guy. Yeah, Jesus was a good guy, but Jesus is the son of God. Well, Jesus was a good teacher. Oh, really? What, what, what teachings do you like about him the most? And his teachings are great, but you know what? He's my savior. He died for my sins and demonstrated his power over sin and death when he rose again on the third day. And my faith and my trust are in Jesus Christ to give me life abundant, life eternal, everything that, that I have and need for life, this life and the next, are found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if he's anything less than that, then we disagree. 
Because what you think about Jesus is everything. And Peter said, when asked, who do you think I am? He stood up and said, the Messiah. And in that, he was saying, you're the son of God. You're, you're everything. The answer to that question is so important. Acts chapter four and verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The name, the person of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 and verse number nine says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart, verse 10, that you are made right with God. It is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Salvation is only found in Jesus. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this question is at the heart of everything, and Peter nailed it. He nailed it. Everybody else was sitting back kind of going, you know, and, and you know there was a couple of guys that when he said the Messiah, they jumped right in there. Yeah, that's what we think too. And then a couple of guys were like, is that what we think? Let's see what Jesus has to say. But Peter stood up and he answered it. And he should get credit for that because the next story is not as good for Peter. Because then we skip down to verse 31. And Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And he talked about this openly with his disciples. Now, Peter had said, you are the Messiah. And to them, that meant that he would come and he would set up a messianic reign, that he would take his place as king over the nation of Israel. And he would rule politically, militarily. He would rule uh, in, in their civic life. He would rule in their religious life. He would be God the king on a throne. And so if you're Peter and you're declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, you're one of his chosen 12, that's a pretty good place to be, right? But then Jesus starts talking and he says, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're going to reject me. Well, now, wait a second. The, the, the Pharisees were supposed to be looking for the Messiah. They were supposed to be preparing themselves and ready for the Messiah. So that didn't make sense to, to Peter's mind. And then he said, I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to die. Well, God the king is not going to die. He's going to rule and reign. And Jesus is talking openly about this. So Peter took him aside. So Jesus I don't want to embarrass you in front of everybody. And he began to reprimand him for saying such things. 
He nailed it with that Messiah thing, didn't he? But now, he's like, listen, I don't think what you're saying is really correct. I don't know how he said it. We're not really told. There's no good way to say it, right? As evidenced by Jesus' response. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Now, that's interesting because Peter probably wasn't alone in thinking what he was thinking. If he was, then I'm, my guess is Jesus probably would have reprimanded Peter privately. But he turned around and looked at his disciples. Peter was just the one who was going to say it, right? And he says, Jesus says, get away from me, Satan, in reprimanding Peter. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. The disciples and Jesus have this interaction. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And although Mark doesn't fully go into it, we know that Jesus affirms that answer. And so you can imagine what's happening in the heart of Peter and in the other disciples. They're thinking, we're getting ready to set up a kingdom. We're getting ready to watch Jesus rule and reign from Jerusalem, Israel, and maybe even reaches beyond. This would have been a, a, a great tur turnover from what is happening. I mean, you had the Roman Empire at the, heart of, uh, at the height of their power, and yet Jesus is affirming, I am the Messiah. The, the, the Pharisees and the other religious elite were looking, were looking for the Messiah. And now Jesus has confirmed what, what the disciples had suspected. He is the Messiah. That's why on more than one occasion, they would have those discussions of like, not just are we 12 going to be exalted right under Jesus, but which of us is going to be the best? Who's going to sit at his right hand? Who's going to be closest to him? Because they were thinking, we're on our way. Not, we're going to watch him die. We know the whole story, right? But they didn't. And so when Jesus starts talking about his rejection by the Pharisees and his coming death, no wonder Peter would take him aside and go, 
I don't think that's right. But Jesus said, you don't understand God's plan. And then he goes on and gives some of this very difficult teaching. He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up your own way and take up my cross. You've got to take your will and set it aside and follow my plan for your life. Listen, if you want to gain life, you've got to lose it. It's not about what you want. It's not about your desires. You need to do what I want you to do. You need to follow my plan. You need to follow my desires. Well, that doesn't sound as exciting as being one of the 12 rulers right under Jesus. And he says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. In fact, Peter would be the one that would deny and be ashamed of Christ. But Jesus restored him. Jesus forgave him after his resurrection. Peter nailed it with saying, you are the Messiah. But then he totally blew it when he tried to reprimand Jesus for predicting his own death. Not understanding that as the Messiah and the Son of God, he should Peter should listen to what Jesus had to say because he was foretelling what was coming. No wonder Peter wasn't ready. He didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. Not that any of us would ever find ourselves in that predicament of not listening to what God had to say for us and then finding ourselves in situations that we weren't prepared to handle. All right, just me. One more story. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 10. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. I like that little tidbit. I don't know. I think, you know, we live in an age of technology, you know, where people can have like flashing lights on their Christmas sweaters. But when they wrote the gospel, the only thing you could be is like, you could bleach this stuff as much as you wanted. It was whiter than that. Luke also records this example, as does Matthew or this story, but Luke says that the disciples were praying and they fell asleep. When they woke up, Jesus was transformed. Mark doesn't give us that detail, but he says that the clothes and the appearance of Jesus were transformed. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Interesting, too, that These guys had never seen Elijah or Moses, but they knew who they were. They were in a heavenly glorified state. They they recognized them. and, And imagine what this scene was. 
Here, Peter, James, and John were, and there's Jesus transformed. He, he must have been glowing. His very clothes were changed. Two other figures like him in this, this heavenly type of state are there, and they're talking together, and these guys are like, what is going on? Two of them were struck. They didn't know what to say. Neither did Peter, but that didn't stop him. Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then verse number six, he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. I love that verse. Oh, I could, that should be my life verse. If I ever get a tattoo of a verse, that might be it. Mark 9, he just said that because he didn't know what to say. I'm not going to do that, but I can't relate to it. He didn't know what to say, so he said nothing. No, no, he said something. He just said the first thing that he just opened his mouth and words fell out. But also he was scared to death because he got a glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state. And he said, we ought to um, make some booths. Now that seems like an odd reaction, but the Jews would do that. They, they, they had a whole feast of booths where they would, they would kind of make this uh, like a, a shelter or a, a shaded area, and they would, they would eat there, they would worship there. And so the first thing that comes to Peter's mind is, oh, we ought to we ought to make something where we can worship, where we can we can honor. And then the Father intervenes. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my dearly loved Son. Listen to him." Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. They saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. What Peter didn't do is go, Jesus, you shouldn't be talking like that. He had learned that lesson. But they still amongst themselves went, what is this guy talking about? We talked about this a little bit last week, but I don't think it should be lost on us. That what the disciples were going through was an extraordinary thing. And while there are many prophecies and when you look at the gospels and you look at the life of Christ and then you look back on the Old Testament, you can see how Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. You see how Isaiah talks about uh, this lamb that is slain and this sacrifice and his stripes and healing and all of that. And we see how Jesus fits in that. 
But the Jews were not looking for a Messiah that would be rejected by the Pharisees, that would be killed on a cross, and that three days later would rise again. That was not the the story that they were telling. That was not what preachers were proclaiming. That, That is not what they thought would happen. They were focused on the prophecies that said things like, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to sit on the throne of David. That's what they were looking for. And so as Jesus begins unpacking for them what he is doing, and when Mark chapter 9 is written, he's about, or, or in, the, in the story of Jesus' ministry, he's about three years into his ministry. We're going to see as we go through the rest of Mark that all of a sudden it's going to be about leading up to his crucifixion very quickly. And so they've been with Jesus. They've heard him teach and preach. They've seen the miracles, but now he's beginning to prepare them for his death. And it doesn't fit with their plan. It doesn't fit with where they thought they were going. And sometimes God leads us down paths that weren't our plan. But isn't that what he said? You've got to surrender your will and take up my cross. It's not always going to go exactly the way you thought. Listen, that that's scary to me. I'll be honest with you. Because, like, I remember a time you know how you go through different times in your life? Like I remember as a single young man and I thought I could live in a cardboard box if I had to, you know what I'm saying? Like, just give me a job. I could work it. I could figure it out. And then you get married and you're like, well, we probably need a car, but still we could live in a car. Like we could be okay. I could still, I can provide for my wife. And then you start having children, you get a mortgage And now I'm 53 years old. I've been a pastor here for 17 years. I have no discernible skills, right? I mean, if I were to lose this job, what would I do? Start over in some career? I'll tell you what I would do. Would you like fries with that? That would be me. And let's be honest, I probably would mess that up. Have you seen the things at McDonald's? Those are a lot of keys there. I would be looking at Jason because I need his help for all things technology. I mean, this morning I I found Ben. I was like, hey, uh, this part of the mic disconnected from this cable. I don't think it's supposed to do that. He's like, you broke, did it? Ben didn't say that. He's smarter than that. That's what I heard. And so I have a plan. Well, what if God decides to do something different? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to follow him? Are you? Say, preacher, I got a plan for my life. I, 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 this is the way I want my kids to, to, to grow up and, and my grandkids to be. And, and this is the way I think things ought to be. And what if they're not that way? Are you willing to follow him?
Peter would write this in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want to close with this this morning. Peter's writing this very short letter. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, he said this, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. He's writing and he said, listen, this isn't just something we made up. You look at my life and you see what God has done. This isn't some kind of plan. This isn't something that we just came up with. We saw it with our own eyes. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's life did not go exactly the way he thought. Tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to die like Jesus did. But he did die. He was martyred for his faith. He didn't rule and reign in the city of Jerusalem with Jesus like he thought he would but he was able to see the kingdom of God in all its glory. He was able to see the risen Christ after he had been crucified. He got to see Christ in his heavenly form on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was empowered with the Holy Spirit and spoke on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people were converted to the cause of Christ. His life didn't go exactly the way he thought, but God had a plan and he used Peter in a mighty way. What does he want to do with you and me? If we will follow him, we have to lay our will down and take up his cross. What did the father say there on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. I love him. And then he said this. Listen. Listen to him. The problem with the disciples is they weren't always listening to Jesus. They heard him. But they weren't always listening. He tried to tell them he was going to die. But they couldn't hear him because they had visions of his kingdom the way they thought it would be, not the way it turned out to be. He didn't rule from Jerusalem on the throne of David. His followers went out and shook the known world with the good news of Jesus so that we today, literally halfway around the world from Jerusalem, are preaching and proclaiming the good news. I just want to encourage you this morning. I don't know what God has for you. I don't know what he has for me, but I want to hear him. I want to listen. I want to follow him because I know that what he has for me is 
is the best thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ is your Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. If you will trust in him, put your faith in him, he promises to forgive us of the wrong things that we've done, to give us eternal life with him, to be our companion, our guide, our Lord, and our Savior. But we've got to turn from our own desires. We've got to repent of the wrong things that we have done and turn in faith to him. And so will you hear the voice of God today? If you would, bow your head and close your eyes with me. If you are here this morning, you say, preacher, I've heard about Jesus, but this morning I recognize that I've never trusted him as my savior. And this morning, I just desire to to do that, to take that step of faith. It's not about magic words that we say. The Bible said in Romans chapter 10 that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will save us. And this morning, right there in your chair, you may just need to cry out to God in your heart and say, Lord, by faith, save me a sinner. God, I repent from the wrong things that I've done. And I trust in you to forgive me, to save me. This morning, if you've taken that step of faith, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would love to just pray for you, maybe talk to you after the service about what it means that a little bit more to be a follower of Jesus. But with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you just slip up your hand, I just want to pray for you. I don't want to embarrass you, but I do just want to pray for you this morning. Anybody like that today? God bless you. Maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that even as a follower of Christ, your will and your way is, has been the focus. Maybe you know exactly what God is saying to you. Maybe you don't know, but you're not really listening. And this morning, you just need to turn to him and say, Lord, not my will, but thine. Not my way, but yours. Not my desires, but God, I desire to follow you to take up my cross. God, I pray for those who are pray that prayer today. I pray, God, that you would strengthen and encourage them. I pray, God, that you would give them the faith and the courage to hear and to follow after you. God, I pray that as a church, we would seek to do your will. God, that we would see you in your glory and in your majesty. 
Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.